0: You're listening to Live From My Mother's Basement with me, Mike Marino. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Live From My Mother's Basement with, I'm going to say, the greatest guest I've had to date. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Montana came down to the basement. It's not the real basement in New Jersey like I wish it was, but it is part of the basement like what we do here in Los Angeles, California. We got some great chatter we're gonna have. We're gonna have some great talks we're gonna have. We got some great food, and I got a great celebrity guest. Joe, thank you. Thank you for coming you him. over. You got him. <laughs> I had a little bit of a glitch on my Instagram. Is it working now?
1: I don't even know how to get out of the
0: Instagram. <clears throat> Isn't it funny how everything changed so much that instead of going to a radio channel like you did back in the day, you actually have to go to somebody's house and you can go on their Instagram channel, you can go on their Facebook channel, you can go on their YouTube channel, and then you wonder what happened to other people in the world and their situations. But here we are, we're having some fun and we're going to tell some great stories. Here we go. Had a little bit of a glitch over here. Here's our third camera. Watch. Perfect. Hey, everybody, how you doing? Come on in. Come and say hello. Third camera. There it is. You know what's really funny? Well, hopefully everything that we're gonna do is gonna be funny. We're both Italian, but we're both from different states. And I didn't want to say anything until we were rolling right now. You still have a little bit of an accent from Chicago, too. You there. think? Yes, because <laughs> you said the word battery. Battery. if I said three guys over there, too? That <laughs> would be- there, they do it. I can't even imitate there. Oh yeah, I was, how did
1: you say that? I, well, that's the only way I could talk. I always said that if Dennis, when Dennis Farina and Dennis Franz and I would get together, the Wrigley Building building would appear, just would kind of come out of like like brigadoon out of the mist. Yeah, just were, from our the
0: accents. They were all Chicago guys. Huh? Oh yeah, very Chicago. They make me sound like I'm from London. There was one guy I think you just mentioned his name. Was he in the movie Um with De Niro? Dennis and- Farina. You talking
1: about-
0: no, not Dennis Farina. He played a lot of mobsters. I just remember this one specific line, and you could hear that Chicago accent, I'm going to take this pencil and shove it in your well, eye. Joe,
1: well, no, Joey Pants is in
0: New York. Joey Pants was in it too, of course, but yeah. he, 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 I think he said it to him. Yeah. Joey Pants know. kept saying, it's, it's a midnight run, for Christ's sakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What guy am I thinking of? I think he played the cop. Was it Farina? Is Dennis Franz Dennis Farina?
1: Dennis Farina. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it was Farina. The yeah. Chicago guys. Well, Farina was a Chicago cop for
0: 18 years. Wow. Isn't it amazing some people actually go from one end of the spectrum to another? He was a cop, and then he became an actor.
1: You know, what it was is when Michael Mann was making the movie Thief in Chicago with James Kahn, Dennis was the Chicago copper on a set. Just to have the Chicago copper on a set, you have to have a copper. there. You know to make Just kind of. And he would talk to Michael Mann, and Michael Mann, the, the director producer, was so intrigued by Dennis, he said, "You know what? If you're consider and Dennis had been doing little acting around town, like little, little things, like little they wrote the yeah. And Michael put him in like next thing you know, puts a little bit in this movie. put He put him in Thief, I think a little bit part playing a copper. But from there, he did then he did Crime Story, did a series, and da, 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 started then. Then Dennis's career took off and became you know what he became.
0: It's interesting how that happens to a good amount of people uh, who didn't start out as actors. Uh, I spent uh, a good amount of time being friends with, rest in peace, Danny Aiello. Yeah. And I remember when he was telling me that he really didn't get a grasp on being in show business till he was in his 40s. Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, Dennis, I mean, uh, Danny was... Uh he, he would call out the trains, you know, he was that whatever the name of that guy who would, like, go oh, next time, uh, you know, go oh. to flat one. He did that. He was the voice at Grand Central Station. In was he really? Yeah. That's what he because he and I, we did a movie together, that, uh, Danny and I, with George Hamilton. He, George Hamilton, and I did a movie in Madrid, Spain. And also, it was a, we shot it was so great. We shot in Paris in Madrid. It was called Off Key. Uh, but anyway, uh, we, we spent a whole summer together, the three of us. And Danny, what a piece of work, but but that's that's a guy that yeah literally came from you know, doing it, calling out train stops. I think it was
0: called the conductor because somebody's writing in right now going, conductor, conductor. No, no, but it wasn't on no, the train. No, it wasn't the conductor. It wasn't
1: the conductor. He's the guy like in the in the station. When you went in the station, you heard over the loudspeaker goes, you know, the train at station, you know, track number four going to Poughkeepsie and the ba da It
0: was Danny. I heard your accent again. Yeah. Track number track four. Track <laughs> number
1: four over there. <clears throat> the three guys over there, That's my Dennis Franz impersonation, which always cracked me up because I'm thinking he was the star of NYPD Blue. Yeah. Right? And so I'm thinking he did that for like 11 years. And I'm thinking, so people who watched that show thought that guys from New York, from NYPD Blue, talk like this. Which is he had the strongest Chicago accent of any human on the planet Earth. You know. So what are you do? Know?
0: It's amazing how that actually is a reality in show business. Because I remember when I would audition for things and they would say, you sound too East Coast. And I wouldn't get the job. And here's a guy from Chicago playing a cop in New York City. Right. And he got the job. Oh, yeah. But the thing is, in real life, people do travel. Yeah, they travel. They live in different states. that's true. That's true. Why wouldn't there be a cop in New York that's from Chicago? Yeah, exactly right. You don't have to be that specific. I just thought it was ironic. NYPD was starring. The guy that talks like Like this. Like that. Oh. Great. I remember when I used to ride the uh, subway system in New York City when I was a kid. Because that's where I grew up trying to make my way in the acting business. And you would ride those trains. And yeah, you heard the guy, it's the eight train. Comes into 42nd, next stop, 8th. And if you didn't hear it, right. there's a chance you're on the wrong train. Exactly. But I had a lot of fun riding trains back in that time. And now I wouldn't go down there. I'd be petrified.
1: Yeah, well, it's a different day, different time.
0: Yeah, you ain't kidding. But you got into the acting world from a young age.
1: Well, I got exposed to it in high school. I mean, I, but I, you know, but I there was no there was no reason for me to become an actor. I mean, there was nobody in my family in it. There was no show business connection. I never even saw a play till I was like sixteen, because my brother, I remember, my was eight years older than I am. I remember he got tickets to a play. Went take his girlfriend, and and they accidentally put an extra ticket in the envelope when they ma- when he mailed in for the tickets. So he had three tickets. So he says, well, can we take my my little brother?" Because I was like fifteen at the time. She said, "Yeah, sure." So I went along and I remember I fell asleep during it. It was like, I forget the play it was some off, you know, some off-Broadway play that come to Chicago. So it wasn't like I had this thing of like theater in my blood or anything. But what happened was when the movie West Side Story came out, I was so taken by that movie. I must have saw it eight times because those were the days when, as long as you stayed in the theater, they didn't draw you out. Right. You know, you could just sit there and keep watching. You know. <laughs> so I must have seen like about five times in a row. <clears throat> And then my high school—I was a junior in high school—they they had signs up saying we're going to be doing West Side Story. Please come and audition. And I was like, what are they talking about? I saw the movie. What? Did, what, did, what I didn't even know that it was a play. That it had been based on a play. I was so ignorant to theater at the time. But I was so intrigued by the idea of West Side Story. I said, well, I, I'll try out. this because I love that movie so much. Maybe they need a. A you know, little skinny Italian kid, which I was at the time, to be like in it. Now, as it turned out, I didn't get cast, but at the audition, when I just the, the auditioning process was almost like it was like going to Mars because it was up at this little theater at night and the kids running around in black leotards like, who are these people? <laughs> I was not, they were like people from another planet. And, and but I was so taken with it, I thought, I got, I want to keep trying this out. And so I kind of kept that. And it, I've never looked back. That was you know, over what 60 years ago, maybe.
0: So 16 years old in Chicago, you're checking out to play West Side Story. Now, I think West Side Story had to have affected so many different people because I wanted to be one of the Jets. Sure. As soon as I saw that movie, I'm yeah. like, I want to be yeah. a Jet. I don't want to do the ballet. <laughs> But I want to be a jet. Yeah, you'd have been, been a good riff. I've been a, I'd have been a good riff. I can't sing and I can't dance. Well, now yeah, I really it. can't dance. Yeah, there you go. That's, that cuts into it a little bit. I could right. do the funny version of riff, like, hey, that hurt. <laughs> but I remember watching the movie as well, saying to myself, boy, I would really like to be an actor. And I think, just like you, my family doesn't come. My, parent, my mother comes from Italy. That's the truth in the stand-up right. show that I do. My mother, for real, all her brothers and sisters, they're all first... Born in Italy and then Mm -hmm. came over. My father was already here. Um, I was born in uh, the United States. So nobody in my family knew anything about acting. It's just that when I was born, all I wanted to do was impersonate people. I wanted to crack jokes. I wanted to be the life of the party. And then when I was 16 years old, I had a high school teacher who was teaching um, music. Music. And I played the drums. I read about how you played the bass guitar. Right. We've got to talk about that. Yeah. Being friends with the guys in Chicago. Right. The band still, Chicago. still. Oh, greatest yeah, so band good. alive. In my mind, they are, yeah. Huh. So I would start going into New York City and I was taking acting lessons. But even when I was taking acting lessons, I had to be funny somehow. I just couldn't take it seriously too long. Yeah, well, I had it was, crack in, your, joke
1: it was in your blood to do that. I mean, yeah. Obviously.
0: I don't mean to go off track, but I no, did no, read no, about no, that to track. Chicago. So you played the bass?
1: I play yeah, I was in a band in, in, in the mid-sixties. We did it as a joke, actually. Initially, it's four of us guys, four Italian guys were in was in, I think, our English class. They wanted was, the,
0: the, yeah, see, that's actually really funny to me. Four Italian guys in an English class. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we ended up creating a band. Well, the assignment
1: was <laughs> do bring something do a project that shows um, the culture of England. You know what I mean? They wanted and so the four of us got together and said, so the Beatles had just come out. Oh. So we said, well, that's cultural I mean, it's music. They're very popular from England. So as a joke, you know, I, I, I really didn't know how to play the bass at that time. But the one guy, the lead guitar player was a wonderful musician. He had a guitar. He had a, another guy there played rhythm guitar. It was a guy, a drummer, a kid who played drums. And I, I, I was into singing. So they figured, well, you will give you a guitar and you just play the bass strings. We'll show you. Everything. Right. And we'll just do a song as a joke. Like, so this is our thing, our our project for English culture. And we did a song. We did a Beatles song. It was a Please Please Me. And you go, last you know, we did it for a class. And the class went nuts because it was a joke. But they took it seriously because we actually sounded pretty good. So we thought, after we did that, they said, well, would you guys do that like at an assembly for a school? Learn a couple songs; it'd be fun. Cause so we, we took them seriously. We had little wigs. We had little. We, the drummer's sister made us these collarless jackets that the Beatles wore, and we did like three songs at an assembly, and the place went nuts. So of course we started to think. Wait a minute, we make a She got all doing this, you know. So we started playing sock hops and things like that. The cut to the chase, we became a band, and we were doing all right. And we started playing. We were together about five years, and about four years into it. We were playing out in um, Kentucky, Louisville, for, for the Kentucky State Fair in Louisville, and we're playing with Bobby Sherman, The Outsiders, uh, Cannibal and the Headhunters. They had that song "Land of a Thousand Dances," but then they hired a band to kind of just back up the single groups, right? And there was a band called The Missing Links. The Missing Links ultimately became the band Chicago, mm-hmm. and that's how why I, I got to be so close to them, because. They were there and we we liked them. They were such great musicians because they could back up the other guys. They could all read music and they're playing. And we're thinking, no, these guys are great. So then later on, we're all back in Chicago, the city of Chicago playing. We're playing at a place called the Cheetah. There was one in New York and there was one in Chicago. Cheetah? The Cheetah. It was a a teen nightclub. It was great. It It was a pretty popular venue back in the 60s. So we're playing the Cheetah. The guys from the Missing Links come to see us. And they tell us, they go, hey, we're starting a new band. We're breaking up the, the missing links. We're going to add a trombone. We're going to add a trumpet. Because they just had the sax, the guitar, drums, and bass at the time. We're adding a, a, it. This, this, we're going from a four-piece band to a seven-piece band. And we're going, oh, yeah, that's great. And we're thinking when we left, what are they, nuts? What the, they're going from four to seven? Because everything was about trying to make a little more bread. You know, you add a member to the band. Yeah, you, yeah. You just split the pie yeah. less. They said we're going to change the name. We're going to become the Chicago Transit Authority. We're thinking, oh yeah, great. They're going to name themselves after a bus. You know, <laughs> back in the subway, how good are they going to be? You know, <laughs> well, needless to say, uh, you know, they uh, they struggled for a while because they would only do original music. That was the thing. And there were there literally were nights when our band would get a call. We'd be on an off night and we get a call from one of these teen nightclubs saying, "Can you guys get over here because this goddamn band, the, the Transit Authority guys, they won't." play the top 40 stuff. They wanted to play their own stuff and the kids were like, no, man, we wanna hear, you know. And we were like whores, we'd play whatever they want. Yeah. So we went, we were, we'd <laughs> replaced them with all "Oh, sorry guys thinking, "When are they gonna learn? And of course the first album came out and that's when I realized I got no business in rock and roll. <laughs> I, you know, we were a good cover band, that's all we were gonna be and so uh, I went on to acting and they continued on as the band Chicago and they done very good without any of
0: my advice. <clears throat> well, everybody knows the band Chicago. Now, a lot of people who are watching this show realize how Chicago actually started. Was their first album named Chicago? Transit Authority, right? Chicago Transit Authority, yeah. CTA, yeah. That was the first album. And then they cut that end off and just went well, with Well, and what it
1: was is the Chicago Transit Authority... Com- they they made them cut it off. Oh, they did? Yeah, because before they got really... I mean, if, in retrospect, they probably are sorry they did that because they could have used the... Wine, yes, you know, like, they, they first, might
0: be able to had rights to some of their songs. Yeah, but,
1: but they, instead they said, no, 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 you can't use that name. I think they were worried. What if they turned out to be like all druggies or something? Who knows, but whatever. These guys are great guys, great musicians, great human beings.
0: So but did you have the opportunity them. to play the bass in Chicago, or they already had this?
1: No, no, no. I never played in with them in the band. No, but we played with them, like we toured with them, like and played similar gigs and stuff like that, same gigs. But I never played. But I'm still very close to them. I just narrated their a documentary on. Oh just, no, kid! Just about two months ago, uh, this guy Peter Pardini. He's the nephew of one of the keyboard players. they got two keyboard players now. You know, the band's changed over the years. Sure. Lou Pardini is their, uh, one of the keyboard guys. And his nephew, Peter, is like their documentarian. They did an HBO special on them, I think, a few years ago. And I'm actually in that. They interviewed me for that. But this thing now is just a documentary about the band. And I narrate the documentary. So, uh, And I gave the band their Lifetime Grammy Award. Oh, wow. Yeah, about the Almost about maybe less than two years ago, because of COVID, they didn't have um, a live event, so they did a, um, a virtual event, and they went out and taped you know all the different people giving presenting the awards to. There's about three different acts that got Lifetime Grammys, and so I gave the speech for them to get their Lifetime Grammy Award, which was great. Well, it's it's
0: that's a really great story. I mean, in my head, I'm hearing all the songs. Chicago is a great great band and uh who even knew and then when you listen to uh where your career started it's pretty interesting so you really started in just in theater
1: yeah that's all that's all really i did for the first 15 years like Were your I parents said,
0: looking at you like you're going where to do what i'll tell you, you how, what? I'll, I'll tell you how, how
1: this is pretty funny <clears throat> yeah i started theater. the first thing i did was to play hair Nineteen sixty-nine. I got cast. I, I, I was I studied acting in high school, like I said when I did after West Side Story. Took the drama department. Then I went to the Goodman School of Drama, which was now part of the Paul University in Chicago. I was there for a couple of years studying acting, trying, wanting to be an actor. I tried out for the play Hair because I had done musicals in high school and junior college. Right. And I, and, I, and I was doing. So you can cool. sing. Yeah. At, at the, yeah. I was I a can. lead singer in the band. <laughs> so I tried out for Hair. I get cast. As it turns out, the girl who plays Genie, to this day, she's my wife. We've been together over 50 years now. Is that right? Yeah. So that's how we got together doing the play here. So anyway, then from there I did Godspell after that. I really thought musical comedy was going to be my ticket. I thought I was going to be like, you know, one of those guys that just did musicals all his life. But my career took another spin. But talking about, to get to your thing about, you know, uh, even what your earlier thing about like, your parents not understanding what you're doing. My mother lived to be 101 years old. Yes. And at 101, she finally and she just stopped. She wasn't sick. She just went. That's it. I'm out. <laughs> so we're. I at, don't mean to laugh. Uh, no, I mean, I No, no. It's um, It is. My, if you knew my mother, she would laugh. 101. So we're at the funeral now in Chicago. This is just a couple years ago. My brother gets up to speak first. Who's like I said, he's older than I. And he gets up, and the one thing he says is, he says. I don't think my brother Joey even knows this. I'm sure he doesn't. But when he got the, the, the TV show Criminal Minds, our mother called him and she and my, my brother gets, answers the phone. My mother goes, Ronnie, I'm worried about Joey. And my brother says to her, why? And she says, he's only working an hour a week. And she was dead serious. Because, like all this during my career, she never really quite understood what I did for a living. You know, we'd call her and we'd say, Mom, I'm going to be in this movie or I'm going to watch this show. And then she'd watch it, but she's assumed, well, you know, she, I'm working somehow doing leading up to that. And that's OK. You know, she didn't put two and two together. But now she's being told every Wednesday night, nine o'clock, you can see Joey on the show. And she would do that. I and mean, then she would think, well, wait a minute, she's on there from nine to 10 every Wednesday. Well, could he possibly make a living? So she, yeah. she wanted to send me like 20 bucks or something. My brothers had to tell her, no, 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 he's fine. It's The, the hour a week is okay. Don't know. And I think that's, in a way, it's kept me hopefully level-headed because I always thought, how can I take this business so seriously when my own mother didn't really understand what I did for a living, really, which is fine, you know. All she cared about was, how about how's your children, how's your daughter, you know, that's, you know, her. all she cared about was the grandchildren, which, which is as it should be. And my job was just like, she thought it was cute that. In fact, the one, when she went, saw searching for Bobby Fischer. They asked her, interviewed her about it. So what did you think of it?" She goes, "Oh, I liked him in that movie because he didn't get whacked. <laughs> because usually I would get whacked. I mean, in Godfather <laughs> Three, I got whacked. I mean, I got whacked in a lot of movies back yeah. like then. You know. And so she she appreciated the fact when she went to the movies and saw me and I, I made it all alive. You know. So anyway, that's talking about family and how they have... You know, relate to your occupation.
0: I think I went through the same thing in the beginning years. My mother used to say all the time like this, you know, your father saw you on television the other night, but he's doing construction in the morning and he needs you. <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't do that no more. Why? Well, you got nothing to do. You were on TV last night. Yeah, and you're free tomorrow. Could, hey, <laughs> and the hourly on the construction is good. That's right. I get it. I could never sing and I always wanted to sing. I was never really good at theater. However, I was going to the American Academy and I was going to Herbert Burgoff Studios because I wanted so badly just to be an actor. But I really didn't want to do, wasn't my goal to set out to do Broadway or off-Broadway. I just wanted to be in the film business. But when I started out, I had blonde hair and blue eyes. My blonde hair was very thick. So I could book a potato chip commercial just by saying hello. (laughs) And I thought, well, this is the greatest thing possible. Right. Until you hit 25, and you don't look so young anymore, and you're not in that category. But what would you rather do if you had all choices? Live performing or film and television? Because I get that question. Yeah, of course. And I love being a live performer. Yeah.
1: I I don't think anything could do. That would be like asking Sinatra, did you rather enjoy singing in front of people who are out there screaming for you or being in the booth? making the record. There's an enjoyment to both. Just like I say, making a film or doing a television show, there's an enjoyment. But you think about it, the enjoyment, actually, the process is enjoyable. And then you get to appreciate it months, whatever it is later, sometimes a year later when the the product is there. But nothing can substitute that interaction of you doing a performance. And there's a connection with the audience. And you know, the best definition I give is like, when people say, this, I've often been asked, and you have been asked that too, what's the biggest difference between performing live and performing for film or television? And I say, one of the big things is when you perform in a theater, as you know, usually it's at night, you're doing it on a similar schedule every night. You do it, it's got a beginning, middle of an end. And when you finish, you're energized. Because you've drawn all this energy from the audience who've been part of it. And afterwards, you leave the theater. It's 10, 11, sometimes 11 o'clock at night. You go to a restaurant. You're with friends. You're drinking. You're energized. You don't go right home and knock out. The TV and movie business is the exact opposite. You go to work very usually very early in the morning. You're doing stuff that's all scattered. You might be doing the last scene first, the first scene last. You're doing bits and pieces, bits and pieces. And at the end of the day, you're like fatigued because you've all this energy you've put out has been stop and go stop and go and it's been sucked out through this camera and you've gotten no feedback from this audience so it's 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 the exact opposite of you know your you what you're feeling you know emotional wise and to me that that's a big difference you know I love doing it all but you can't really it's really apples and oranges. Performing. So when live.
0: you have opportunity to do a play, if you're not working on a TV show and it's something you like, you do it. Well, you know, I, more I used to do it more then than now.
1: Well, because it's such a, uh, it's a much usually a much bigger commitment. I mean, like I said, the first 15 years, all I did was theater. And then when I would work on Broadway, I mean, when I did, I mean, Glengarry Garry, Glenn Ross, 1984. You know, that play changed my life. I won the Tony Award. The show won the Pulitzer Prize. I wound up doing it on Broadway for over a year toured with Peter Falk for six months. Then a few years later I do Speed the Plow on Broadway with Madonna. You know, ran that for whatever it was, almost a year. So I mean the You're theater gonna have to was back up
0: just for a minute because I want to cover so much of this stuff. And I know that you won the Tony and I know you won uh you worked a lot with this uh Mammoth. David Mammoth sure. a lot of stuff. You know? But um I mean could we even say what was Peter Falk like? I mean you know oh. it, he, he there was a time where colombo was the most impersonated character yeah. from yeah. comedians oh
1: yeah
0: yeah everybody had to do that oh, wow well, excuse me ma'am oh, i yeah. even tried it.
1: oh sure yeah yeah kevin pollack does a great one when I mean, he came to it to because the, the thing about peter we became very very close i could imagine you're in a play yeah, every well, night for years. six months we toured together we stayed very close in fact i was his wife had it that i was Basically the only person she lets visit him his last few days because you know he was he he was you know he he was suffering he was getting a little bit of dementia, and there was no reason for you know a lot of people to come to visit him but right then and so the one thing I wanted to do is after he passed, he had never got his star on the Hollywood walk of fame now of course they offered it to him back in the seventies early when Colombo was big, but you have to follow through when, when you when you' when, when they when they you know, give you that kind of that honor and call you and say, you know, you've been selected to get this star. You gotta follow through. Peter was one of those guys that, like, yeah, well, yeah, you, know. you got he never picked the day. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't really care. That was Peter. Really? Yeah, he really did. So here he passes away. had never gotten it. And I say to myself, I gotta change that. This is this is wrong. I mean, you know, people walk those streets. They got a. They. Colombo is such an icon. Yes. So they do. They do it posthumously, but you have to do the. the go through the process. So I contacted the two networks, the main network that had Colombo on when it was first done. And then I contacted the network that does all the, it me MeTV, or whatever it is who does that. And I got them both to kind of pitch in half and half because there is a fee that goes with it once you know, the, the start doesn't happen. It's a little gets changed hands.
0: For you so, English-speaking people, Scott all is it costs a little bit of money.
1: Yeah, a little bit okay. of money. Yeah. So anyway, they agreed to do it. And then we picked the day, and, uh, and and you're allowed two people to speak on your behalf. And since Peter, and of course, then the person who gets the star, it's to speak, so you have three people speaking. So I spoke on Peter's behalf because, he, of course, he was had passed, and I, and I kind of spearheaded making this happen. Right. And then I brought in uh, Paul Reiser and Ed Bagley Jr. to also speak because these were also two friends of his that he worked right. with. And and then the other request I made, and w- which was granted, is I, I, there was a I picked my, when I had my star. Like, I think it was two thousand eleven. You get to choose where it is if there's an open spot. In other words, if they have a spot available and you
0: really so was that like a map, and
1: they say well, well they where they, are you, they go yeah. walk the streets and see if you know you, you could because because when you, there's a lot of that are just blank stars on a street, and if there's right. a blank and you want that blank, you can usually get it if if you're chosen to get a star. So I did that, and then Errol Flynn was my hero as a kid. Because right. the movie Robin Hood, I was loved that movie. He <laughs> was my hero. So I went to Errol Flynn's star, and there was an empty spot next to it. So I said, I'll take that. So that's where my star is, right next to Errol Flynn. So when to get Peter's star, the next star, Errol Flynn's on one side of me, and the other side is Debbie Reynolds. But then there's an empty star here. And I said, you know, since we, we have to choose, and his wife wanted me to be able to choose, I said, oh, I'd like to be close to Peter. So they put his star. we got Debbie Reynolds between us, which is not a bad no. spot to be. So That's
0: just unbelievable.
1: So if you walk down the Hollywood Walk of Fame, you'll, you'll walk over Peter Falk, you'll walk over Debbie, then you'll get to me, and then you'll get Darrell Flynn.
0: Well, I'll tell you right now, I'm going to tell everybody who's watching, we're going to superimpose... Me and my crew. There you go. (laughs) Going over to the uh, Walk of Fame, take some pictures and superimpose it into this episode because that's a great story. And uh, I didn't know Paul Reiser would be friends with. um,
1: Well, the way it happened is Paul had written a movie and wanted Peter Falk to play his father. And he knew how close I was to Peter.
0: Oh, is that right? And he had
1: never met him. So he called me and said, "Could you think you could like set up just a meeting with Peter Falk and I because I want to pitch this movie to him? I said, well, "Let me see." So I called Peter. I said, "Peter, you know, Paul Reiser explaining he's got this movie. He thinks he'd be great as his dad. Would you at least meet with him on it?" And he did, and he liked it, and he made the movie. No so, kidding. Yeah. So, so that made that connection. What
0: an unbelievable story! And now we have to touch on Madonna because he's another Italian icon. Yeah, yeah, that was that. that was wonderful. That was. Uh, well what had
1: happened with that is. I had done the movie House of Games for David Mammoth. This is like 1980s. Now, you guys six really did a lot of work
0: together. We did a lot of So stuff I guess it's together. true to some certain degree that Hollywood people tend to work together quite often. You know each other. It right? makes sense.
1: I mean, why, why wouldn't you hire or be with the people you, you've known? Like David and I go back to the early 70s in Chicago. He was a struggling playwright. I was a struggling actor. We kind of met each other. He would ask me to do readings of his. When he wrote the play American Buffalo, he had just written it. And he, I was with this theater company called the Organic Theater in Chicago with, with Dennis Franz, Meshach Taylor. We were with this theater company. Mammoth was just a struggling playwright in town. Asked, him, would you guys read this new thing I've written so I can hear it? So we did the original reading of American Buffalo. So, you know, right, I ran out of the typewriter. No kidding. Yeah. So no, that's how our relationship typewriter. started. You know, we're, yeah. He used to do it always on a typewriter, and, and 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 so that's how that whole you know relationship you know started with Dave. But, so Jump Cut, now years later, we've, we've, we've worked a lot in Chicago, blah, 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 He gives me the call. I get to do playing Gary Glenn Ross. That changes my life. He wins the Pulitzer. or I get the Tony. Everything's great. So now we make this movie. It's the first time David's directing a movie, House of Games. Well, the movie comes out. Madonna sees the movie. Now, at this point, I didn't know her. I hadn't met her. She writes a letter to Mammoth saying, I saw the movie House of Games. I think it's one of the best things I've seen in my life. If ever you write anything that you think I would be right for. I would love to do it. How could you imagine that? So that, just shortly thereafter, Speed the Plow, this play he'd written about Hollywood, or, you know, about the movie business, it was a three-character play with her, her myself, and Ron Silver. Um, they thought, well, here's that, you know, what a fortuitous <laughs> time to get the letter. So uh, they cast her in the play, and the three of us did that play on Broadway, and. Uh, and her and I got to be pretty close because then uh, a few years later, she did the movie, uh, Body of Evidence, with Willem mm-hmm. Dafoe, and I'm also in that. Uh, and so the three of us kind of were the leads in that movie. And, uh, and I, to this day, I mean, I just saw her not that long ago um, at, at her house because she's, um, they're, 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 I don't know what stage it's in, but they're making a movie about her life. Um, but starting when she's like a young girl. Hopefully they'll make this movie of her. I hadn't seen her in a long time, so just like I said, this was just, God, maybe a little over a year a year ago that we did a re- we did a reading of this movie. And she asked me to, to read the part of her dad, you know, because, because it starts with her as a little girl. So I mean, so I to play her dad in the reading as when she was a little girl. So I was flattered because I got to meet her. I got to know her dad from when we did Speed the Plow. See, I, that's, I, I, that's, yeah.
0: that's just so incredible to probably a large amount of people because you're meeting these celebrities and you get to work with them. But then again, you're a celebrity yourself. So then you take like the average person who doesn't see these people and they wonder, how is that even possible? That that's that goal is being achieved. Because now let's just take, for instance, myself. I break my ass. I travel like crazy and I try to be kind and caring and a great entertainer wherever I go. And then I start becoming friends with guys like yourself. And people will say to me, how the hell do you know Joe Montaigne? And you are like going, well, there really is a story behind it. Just the way you're telling the stories behind it. So it's exciting still for me to meet everybody and anybody. I have the utmost respect for you and everybody you've introduced me to. We're going to talk about that too because I became good friends with them. Yeah. lucky enough to keep working with them like our mutual friend Ronnie but we're going to get yeah, to yeah but that.
1: you earned it because I remember because I remember the first time I saw you it was an event I think it was in San Pedro and you were performing at this whatever the thing was I don't even remember what the event was but I, you, you You were part of the, the entertainment for that event mm-hmm. and when you came on I was like this guy's fantastic I mean I, I, mean, I loved you I thought you were so good and I, I'm sure I came up to you and told you that and I remember that kind of like
0: Whatever started started that ball rolling, you know. And well, how did you feel when you first started meeting these people on your way up? Well, you know, you know what? It's it, it's just,
1: it, yeah. It's just I. I'll give you an instance. I remember when I was shooting the movie Godfather Three. The first day, we were, in, we we're shooting in Cinecitta Studios, which is a famous studios where Fellini made a lot of his movies. Where is it? Rome, Rome. So in Rome, Italy, I'm at Cinecitta Studios. I'm about to shoot this first scene of the, my first day in Godfather Three. Of course, I'd already had done some things at this point, and then, you know, my career was going well. But they're about to say action, and I'm standing in this on a set. And it's it's the scene, anybody's familiar with the movies, the scene was just a big banquet, like Rome, and, and I walk around and I basically insult everybody and, and whatever. I, I paid the price at the end. But anyway, but we're getting ready to, sh- to say action, and I'm looking, I'm thinking... Here's Al Pacino standing in front of me, you know, looking up at me because I'm because my first line is going to be to him. I'm thinking, oh, that's Al Pacino. That's Michael Corleone from this movie, The Godfather, that I saw, you know, 18 years ago. That's one of the greatest movies that ever existed. Then I look over here and I see here's Francis Coppola, who's going to about the you know, yeah. action, you know, over here. And then I'm looking at all the different actors and f- from the you know, from the past movie, and, and I and I have that little tinge of like, what? Whoa. Well, you know, nervousness, like, this is unbelievable. But then almost instantly, what goes through my head is I went, wait a minute. I'm here because this is where I wanted to be. I said, it's like, and I equate it to like a kid who's like playing Little League Baseball. You go to do the Little Leagues, then you go into the Pony Leagues and maybe Legion Ball and you play high school, college. Then maybe you get, maybe you're lucky, get in the minors and you work. It. Next thing you know, you're in the World Series, yeah. you know, and you're up to bat. <laughs> now, maybe you get nervous for a second. You think, wow, well, I can't believe I'm here. But then on the other hand, you got to say to yourself, but wait a minute. What did you spend all that time doing? To, didn't you want to get here? And so if you're here, you have to take stock of yourself and say, wait a minute. I, I, this is what I wanted to be, and I'm here. So, what, what, what? you know, so let's go, you know, saddle up, jump on the horse, and let's go. And once I made, once I did that, it was all you know. All, all those thoughts happen like almost instantaneously, and it's like, relax, man. This is what you've been, you, you've, 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 you've prepared for this moment. Not a moment's here. Go with it. And once you've done that, and then it makes it a little easier every time you're with somebody. Don't don't get me wrong. Just still get excited. I mean, when I work with Robert Redford, there's a certain thing. When I work with Cher, people, you know, you, you can't help but think, oh, you want to say,
0: man, I love you, man. Yeah. yeah.
1: But on the other hand they're not part of your peer group. You're, you're, you're doing something together and you just feel grateful that you're able to do that.
0: And you come out with an iconic character in the biggest uh, movies of all time. Godfather. Well, I, guess I still get a lot of Joey Zaza
1: screaming at the, like when I'm when I in an airport, and you know, screaming in the sense of, hey,
0: Joey Zaza. Yeah. Every time Hi. I told somebody who was coming on the show, Joey Zaza? Joey Zaza. <laughs> I know. I well, know. It's a lot more than that. You got to read. I, I, There's pages and pages and pages yeah, well, of okay. this man's career. No, hey, look,
1: I, I signed more pictures. I think more pictures is Fat Tony for people than I do as David Rossi from Criminal Minds, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> so my cartoon character, I think I've done, I've done it over twice
0: as long. Let's as grab the- a glass of wine before we there forget. We Everybody knows that he plays a great character on The Simpsons almost as long as The Simpsons has actually been on television. Uh, two Italian guys here, we're going to have a nice glass of wine. We do have a little alibas that was brought to us by our friends down in uh, Foggio Italian Market in Delhi, which is in Lakewood. Yeah. You know, they like to say that there's a lot of not a, not, there's not a lot of good Italian places in Los Angeles. That's not true. No. They're all a name like Fogia. Look that. Fogia. Look at it. Foggia because like Foggia. There. Perfect. How about that? Fogia, Italian market in Delhi. They're in Lakewood. And it's Foggia, it's not Foggia. I don't I actually I don't say it right either. It's supposed to be uh Fogia. Fogia, yeah, which Fogia. is uh, a town in Italy.
1: I'm, I'm all for it. Could so, be the name I have to tell, him. you know, my my family's Marquaviva della Fonte. I read that. I, I, I couldn't have, even say it. little on a little it. long on, 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 the, uh, on the menu, you know, Marquaviva della Fonte. So you have Sicilian in you. That's, yeah, that's my father's side. That's Cala Cheers, Shavette. thank you. Yeah. So, Thanks for coming over to ask. On. my pleasure. I'm half Sicilian and half Bades, which means my father's side is from Sicily, from a town called Cala Shavette, which I've been to, and my mother's side is from a town called Acquaviva della Fonte which I've been to many times, and I'm very close to my family there. My cousin, Nicola, owns a, what they call an agroturismo, which is a farm they turned into a small resort. Oh it's fantastic. Oh, wow. oh, it's fantastic. I mean, it's not it's not fancy or elaborate, but it's it's beautiful. It's built on uh, the ruins of a farm that dates back to the 1600s, so these stone buildings. And it's very uh, pastoral. It's like in a rural part of Italy in Puglia, which is on the Adriatic side of Italy across from Naples. But I'm very close to my Italian
0: roots. Do you get to go?
1: Yeah. I mean, they come here, we go there. I've been there numerous times. I mean, these last few years have been tough with the whole COVID thing. Yeah. But, uh, but I'll be getting out there again soon.
0: I'm hoping the world is going to get up in, uh, real soon so I can go back to doing what I was doing. So let's touch on that, too, because yeah. you've also directed, produced. And right now, one of our buddies is someone you're directing. And his name is Ronnie Marmo. He is in a play. The play is called I'm Not a Comedian, I'm Lenny Bruce, which is the true story of the life of Lenny Bruce, who was a famous comedian way back in the day, but he became more famous for his foul mouth than he did for his performances, which is kind of apropos for what's going on in today's world because now they want to cancel everything that all these comedians are saying, but they should really go back into history and take a look at what was being done anyway. And it's really not offensive if you learn how to just enjoy what somebody's saying.
1: Well, yeah, and also, I mean, like, if you get to see the play, I mean, we've been doing it for a couple, close to five years now. we have had a long run here in L.A. It's a run in New York. It's Now it's currently in Chicago, and we're also touring it around. It's going to Florida next week and then, uh, and then back to Chicago. But anyway, yeah, Lenny Bruce was way ahead of his time. It's because of him. You had people like George Carlin, Richard Pryor, a lot of them followed in his footsteps of, of, like, you know, the First Amendment is there for a reason. I mean, there, there's, you know, we have to be, you, you, you can't put shackles on, on people's brains, you know what I mean? Part of it, I, I blame it on a lack of education, the way that people just get, we, we start being afraid of words, And you know what I mean, as opposed to the intent behind the words, which is what you should really be afraid of. Right. Uh, then we got a problem, you know, Then I think we just almost have a lack of understanding. That's, that's a great almost, point,
0: intent. Yeah. Because you could say the same thing in two different ways. I'll kill you, meaning you really want to hurt somebody. I'll, I'll kill you. Exactly. Meaning I'll hug you.
1: Exactly. So, I mean, uh, so really we have to be very, very careful about what we consider, you know, uh, dangerous and what, what we consider not.
0: Ronnie Marmo is a fantastic actor. He's been in a lot of movies. He was on a soap opera for a while. We've done a couple of projects together. And... uh I saw the play many times. I saw the play when he was in rehearsals. I saw the play in Chicago. I saw the play in New York. I saw the play in New Jersey, and I've seen it here in Los Angeles many times. And I just can't believe the way he pulls it off because he holds on to that guy. Oh, he's, he's he channeled. becomes he, that guy. No, he does.
1: He's channeled it. I mean, it was such a privilege to direct him in that show because he's just, he, he's such a, you know, he wrote it he he he, he it's, it's such a big part of his life he, he worked on it for like five years before he even came to me and said joe i've got this thing you know interested in maybe directing it i'd like you to just see what i've got and then when i saw the material and i and my one of the watch sentences i live by at least in my occupation is if it ain't on the page it ain't on the stage and and, and meaning you know i give all credit to the to the writing i mean if the, if the material is good you got a shot if the material sucks yeah you gotta you know you're in a tough spot but the, he, he did such a brilliant job of, of, of creating this this play building putting this material together that uh and he does a wonderful job of, of doing it
0: it does has a lot of moments it could be depressing at sometimes but it could be funny at sometimes and i love the way he performs it and i'm glad that you're involved in that yeah. And he and i did uh one of the first i'd say major movies i did was pizza with bullets And I got a part in the movie because someone saw me doing stand-up at the Laugh Factory in Hollywood. Right. And he says, I got a great role with doing a mob movie, but it's really, really funny. And I'm like, ah, that's it. I'm finally going to get to play a mobster. So I went down to the auditions. And when I walked in, this lady looks at me and she goes, we're not auditioning the police officers till next week. (laughs) I says, I'm not here to read for that. They told me to come and read for Guido. And all that movie, that's been cast. And I go, "What, what, what they told me to come here today? Ronnie Marmo's playing that character. And I go, well, who's that? And I really didn't know him yet. I kind of knew of him from the Feast of San Gennaro. And so all of a sudden, the director comes in the room, Robert Rothbard, and he goes, what's going on? Oh, this young man thinks he's here to read for one of the roles. And he goes, oh, he don't have to read for nobody. He's cash. You should see this guy do stand-up comedy. He's perfect. He's going to play the priest. Perfect. Perfect. So when I went down to the set for the first time in my life, I took that... Uh, moment Uh and my scenes were with Talia Shire and Vinnie Pastore. Great. Now I walk into a room and here's Talia Shire so I was in a panic and and it was only her and I who had the lines and I am supposed to be a priest who would rather eat food and try to become a mobster and this guy's in a coma. So she says to me uh, we do the lines and everything is fun and when the scene was over, we shot a couple of times. She looks at me and she goes, you're the comedian, right? They were talking about you. And I said, yeah, I'm the comedian. She goes, am I being funny, you think? Is it coming across funny? <laughs> and I went like this, can you wait a minute? And I, and I went and called my brother. Yeah, you're not going to believe this, all right? Adrian wants to know. if I right. think she's funny. Right. Then we got to be friends. And I'm saying to myself, wow, these are all just regular people. Of course they are. This yeah. is just fun. That's great. That's great.
1: It's funny you mentioned Ty, because obviously I worked with her Godfather Yes, three, of course. And Vinnie Pastore, I shot him in the last <laughs> in the last Don, which was another Mario Puzo miniseries. Is did. that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I put a bullet in him at some point. Anyway.
0: Uh, luckily enough, I went on to do some shows with Vinnie Pastore in live events. And then uh, after a few uh, years, I ended up doing a pilot with Ronnie Marmo called... Um, silent Partners. Now, I have to play a wise guy who's silly, because they saw me doing stand-up. Right. It's nice to get a job when you're not auditioning. Yeah. Someone just sees you and says, oh, hey, you're perfect for this, and away yeah. you go. Well,
1: that's the best audition, in a yeah. way. they are seeing you do what you do, you know.
0: Yeah, so, so I had a scene with Ronnie, and uh, we could not stop laughing. Every time they say that, actually, you just fall. Oh, that's great. You no, can't know. stop laughing. Oh, no, I know. Well, he you. Because you look at me, we can't yeah. take each other seriously. Yeah. No, it's
1: great. It's great. Well, also, you look like frickin' Frack. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, you look, you, you, you're like... Frickin' Frack! Well, I mean, you're kind of like opposites. You know uh, what I mean? Extreme He's opposites. Got dark look and all that. And you got that. What's great is, though, because you... Like I have cousins in Italy. My cousin, Costantino. Costantino Carnavali in Italy. He looks just like you. Oh, yeah. He's got the blue eyes, he's got the light hair, you know what I mean? And, you know, everybody thinks Italians all look like like me, you know, or the darker version of me when my hair was black. You know, but that's that's that, that's a myth. The point is, you know, there's even in the, in the, in the play, a few from the bridge, there's that the character, the Sicilian who's got the blue eyes. Oh, is that right? There. Yeah. So, I mean, but that's so perfect. I mean, I, I, I love that. I love that aspect of it.
0: Pass over that plate. Let's try to have some little hors d'oeuvres. Yeah, look at this. Hors d'oeuvres is English for andibast. Listen yes, to this.
1: Thank you for. My it. family
0: says andibast, which is antipuesto. What did you say?
1: Yeah, you always chopped it up. It's just like gabago.
0: You know, it's capicola, it becomes gabago. I never knew it was capricola till I moved right. to California. So was is Yeah. You know. Did everything. you say sauce or the gravy? What's a gravy?
1: we say gravy, too. Oh, yeah. Chicago and New York, I think, had shared that thing. New but
0: it was my mother that did that. So I didn't know any other way. No, my I, mother I said think everybody's great. mother did it then. Because
1: my mother did it. My aunts did it. Everybody I never heard it. sauce till I moved
0: to California. No, I agree with you. Try whatever you like. Yeah, I like There's marinated olives, marinated mushrooms. Yeah. Or this pepperoni. is soup de sade That's spicy. Mm-hmm. This is pepperoni. Uh, cheese. Two kinds of cheeses. is provolone or provolone. Provolone. Um, yeah. Mozzarella and those little hot cherry peppers are great. inside is another type of cheese. I forget what it is, but these are the best. Yeah, beautiful. This is Italian finger foods. Mm-hmm. Regular I, kids go get snacks like cookies and potato chips. Italians, word, this is what we that's have.
1: That's the word antipasto comes from.
0: Yes. It means... They made songs out of it. Yeah. And speaking of songs, before I forget, you were so blessed to play the role of demon. I was blessed. The Rat Pack. I love doing that movie. Yeah. Um, you swallow that, and I'll take you down another road while you're eating that because he makes this look so delicious. He put his Brivolone cheese with the pepperoni together. Mm-hmm. That takes a while. Mm. Great. I'm lucky enough to be the opening act for Dean Martin's daughter, Dina. Mm. I met Dina Martin when I was hosting the Feast of San Gennaro in Los Angeles back in the day when we were thriving. We were Italians everywhere. Right. We were having a ball. I was on a board of directors. Oh. a great event. Oh. And I met every celebrity you could think of. And one of the greatest things for me is every night I performed, I got a gig. Hey, Mike, you want to go on the road? Hey, you're really good. Hey, I'm Louis Prima, Jr. Would you like to go? Hey, I'm uh, Frank Stallone. Hey, right. I'm and away I went mm-hmm. started going with everybody. And Dina was in the forefront. And so she asked me to do a bunch of shows and I did a bunch of shows with them and I had a lot of fun. It's great. There's one thing about being a stand-up comedian when you can go out at night and you're the headliner, you wear jeans and a t-shirt or you graduate now you're doing theaters and you're seeing a thousand people, two thousand people that put on a suit. But when you get to go on stage with what I call a Hollywood icon, you put on a tuxedo and you put that tie on tight. This reminds you, don't curse in front of our audience the amount of time that you're asked to do and you get to stand in front of the orchestra and the orchestra can't leave they have to sit through the comedy they play you on and they play you off then you introduce the icon she comes on stage and you know you're doing good when she does throwbacks to yeah, your act. Exactly. and when he said this and when he said that and my mic said this and then so i got to do this with many different people but now you get to play her fall
1: yeah and that was i mean as you can imagine when i first was offered the role he had, there was a little bit of trepidation in a way because you're thinking, oh, "Why do you play Dean Martin?" Because I idolized the guy. But yet on the other hand, I thought uh, if I, I could not not do it because it was like I, don't know, I would always feel like, "Oh my God, I had a shot to play Dean Martin." But I, what I wanted to do was do all the research I could do on it, which I did. And one thing, and that's how I got to know Dina, was there's something that come out with the press because what, what had come out in the press, uh, there was some talk that. And I think it might have come from maybe some somebody in the Sinatra family that they they didn't wanted to be involved in the maybe in the production of the of the movie but it, it was HBO film and HBO was kind of like no we, we're all right and so the, something leaked out to the press like this is this is gonna be um you know this is going be terrible they're gonna they're gonna defame those guys you know and I thought when I saw this like little blurb I thought this is not this is not true I would have never even taken the job if it was going to be like that insulting to like the Dean Martin family. So, so through a friend of a friend I, I got was able to get a phone number and call Dina Martin to say You didn't know her? No, I didn't know her. Really? No. But she, but she I think it might, I think it might have been through Tom Jason. But it, but it was ever, through somebody made the contact for me and I was able to reach her and say it wasn't even a phone number. I think it was an email. And I sent the email saying just want you to know I'm going to be playing your father in this movie. And there's been some talk I know about that it's going to be Defaming to the to them and to their to their legacy of the Rat Pack, I said, I'm inviting you to come to the set anytime you want to come, and you know I'll, I'll meet with you. I'll, I'll let you read the script. I said, just want you to know I have such respect for your father. I would never even do this job. That was the case. And she 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 got right back to me. Said, thank you so much. No, I'm not going to come to the set. I trust you know what you're saying, and you, you go ahead and make your movie. And da, 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 da. And then when it was over, when the whole thing came out. I was lucky enough I got both an Emmy and a Golden Globe nomination for that, for that movie. And she was the very first person to call me and congratulate you for it. And I just thought, man, we're talking about a class act, you know, this was, we've been, of course, very close ever since, I've seen her perform many times. And-
0: that's, that's just a fantastic story so that we could take these stories even further, which is what I enjoy. That, uh I was lucky enough to be on the dais with your roast. So the <laughs> Dina Martin wrote that she was trying to do like her dad, right? I had done three of them I think she only did three of them. We stopped because of the pandemic So she calls me up and you also mentioned Tom Dreesen Tom Dreesen is a very famous well-known comedian from Chicago right. Who was one of the long-running opening acts for Frank Sinatra right.
1: for like 11 years. Done a
0: lot of shows with Tom Dreesen. He's a great guy and uh, quite honestly if I ever get into my head about all oh, this business I call Tom. Yeah. He'll settle you down. That's true. Mike, relax. Get up, get up, it's okay. Mike. So uh, we go out to do the roast, and it's going to be for Joe Montana, Vegas. Mike, you got to come. I'm like, of course I'm coming. Don't even tell him I'm coming. I'm a loaded gun. And I remember getting out there, and we saw Joe Piscopo, and of course, you castmates from Criminal Minds. Right who I don't know, I didn't know the castmates, but I knew the other people on the dais, right. and I know Joe Piscopo very well. So Joe Piscopo comes over to me and goes, I don't think I prepared well enough for this. And I go, come on, you're only gonna do five minutes, you could do anything you want. He goes, what are you gonna do? I says, I wrote this whole roast, it's gonna be perfect. And he goes, you should probably just do your act. And I go, why would I do that? It's not. A, it's gotta be about Joe. And he goes, "Ah, oh, well, I don't know, I just think you'd hit a home run if you did your act. And I go, well, I'll make my act about Joe. And that's exactly what I did. Now, I don't know if you remember, but I roasted you a long time ago. Before this, I think you were getting an achievement award, but you were sitting next to a female police officer who was becoming chief of police or something. This is a while ago. I do
1: remember, yes, I do remember. And
0: it came through Doug DeLuca and all these city officials and back in the day when we knew all these people who had something to do with the feast in San Gennaro. So he called me down and he goes, you're gonna roast these two. And I was working on something else. I didn't have time to write anything, but I just remember saying, you know what? I, I enjoy improv and, and sometimes I think I can get away with doing things by making people think I don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> on purpose. Right. So I screwed up your careers. <laughs> I made your career her career, and her career your career. Perfect. So I kept looking at you going, you're the best cop I've ever seen. Right. When you patrol, and people are like, this idiot. And then other people go, he's outsmarting everybody in this room, exactly. he knows. Exactly. And I actually have fun doing that. Sure. And that's why I, I want to thank you for introducing me too, to Robert Davi because in the beginning, it was kind of nerve wracking, because he does have that big orchestra, mm-hmm. and he really is a great singer. He is. Yeah. And his audience is a lot of stars. Yeah. So the first few shows, I was kind of nervous. Then we started getting comfortable with each other. And then we did some performances over at Vibrato. And that's when the audience was only 150 people and they're paying a lot of money. So I could kind of goof around like I'm part of the Rat Pack for real. Mm -hmm. And then I, intrig- uh, I put his name in my act. So instead of saying Vinnie get the bat, I said Dobby get the bat. <laughs> and it just started to work. But the one show we had, and I, I kept saying, if only Joe Montagna was here to see this. There's 10,000 people in Long Island. He's a 32-piece orchestra. The original xylophone player was there. Maybe you know his name, Emil. He used to play with Sinatra. Oh, yeah, okay. He since had passed. But there's all these famous players on stage and Davi's backstage and it must have been thirty people asking for autographs and talking and getting in his ear and and all of a sudden you hear him go, I need everybody out of the green room. I'm getting ready to perform everybody get out of the green room. So I walk right the hell out of the green room and he goes, Moreno where you going? <laughs> and you just told me to get out of the green room. Not you, this is for us. And I go, oh, thank you. give me a fucking heart attack. <laughs> I gotta go on. I'm I'm a petrified. No, you're not. Exactly. You're not afraid. Yeah, he almost killed James Bond. You gotta worry about him. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for introducing me to him. So now we move into Criminal Minds, probably uh, one of the biggest biggest hit TV shows on television. Yeah, we had a good run, 15 years,
1: uh, and and there's talk there there they there's talk of bringing us back, and so we'll see if that materializes. But that's the current, you know, kind of thing that's
0: out there. Well, tell us about the show that you're on now.
1: Well, I'm on a series called As We See It on uh, Amazon Prime, which is a show that's very close to my heart because it was created by Jason Kadams, who did Parenthood and Friday Night Lights. And it's about these three young adults on the autism spectrum. It's personal to me because my oldest daughter has autism. And, right. Uh, and so, and these three actors all literally are on the spectrum. And I my hat's off to Amazon and for... Universal Studios and everybody involved with it because they put their money where their mouth is. Because because we didn't just, it's not like stunt casting. They went out, they found these three wonderful young actors who are all on the autism spectrum, but they're just tremendous performers in their own right. And then they also, they hired 12 people on the crew who were all on the autism spectrum. Now that's something you don't necessarily have to do or you wouldn't think what they would do, but they did. And they also had a person on the set acting as a liaison with them Somebody from a group called the Miracle Project. So there was always somebody there. If there was any questions or this or that or concerns, which, of course, there wasn't. It, just, it worked so beautifully. Everybody, you know, working together and understanding that it was going to be, you know, moments might be a little different than what was the norm. But we shot eight episodes. It just dropped a few weeks ago on, on Amazon Prime, and it's... The reviews couldn't have, you know, you, I couldn't have written better notices for it, so I was just happy to see that because I just think they were beautiful, beautiful episodes. We did eight episodes. We're waiting to hear if we're gonna continue, but re- regardless of it, I'm just so proud to be a part of it because it's about something and it's really, and since it's, it's streaming as opposed to network television, they don't, have to, they don't have to cut any corners, they don't have to like censor themselves because some of the topics we get into because it's a, it's a dramatic show, just like any it's scripted and all that, but they're able we're able to say and show and do things that could be sometimes shocking, very funny, uh, you know, entertaining. All of all of it, you, it, it. There's no there's no boundaries on it, which which is what life is. You know, there's no boundaries. What on life it, What either. does
0: it mean by the spectrum? You keep saying there are all well, on, the, on the, the Well, spectrum. people, yeah,
1: people, because. The, the, Because when people, the best definition of of like autism, one of the best definitions I've heard is when somebody said, when you meet a person with autism, you've met a person with autism. And by that, it means that the spectrum of people on the autism spectrum is so wide. I mean, it it goes from, when you take, Elon Musk has basically said that he's on the spectrum. This is the guy that created Tesla, you know what I mean? So you, you can have brilliance.
0: Right. Oh, okay. You know, depending
1: on, on how it manifests itself in you. And yet, on the other hand, you can have people on the autism spectrum who can't speak or can't, you know, like Well, my daughter is somewhere, you know, she's somewhere in between. I mean, she's going to be 35 years old. She's brilliant in some things, in terms of her art, in terms of her memory, in terms of certain aspects. But on the other hand, she likes going to Disneyland and seeing the princesses. You know, right. she's still ten years old in some right. aspects and certain things she can't do. And her speech is almost like language is a, is her second language, and we don't know what the first language is. So, the spectrum is a, this huge, wide-ranging thing, and people on that spectrum could fall into anywhere on it. But but we've learned more and more about it over the years, and and the main thing is to be understand it, be accepting of it, and know that we all got to live on this planet together
0: and get by i'm glad you clarified that because i've had a guest on my show his name is paul simmons and he has a a radio show it's 10 years all dedicated to autism and it's called autism radio now he came on my podcast i had done a bunch of charities to raise money for autism awareness on the east coast so he comes on my podcast and he's talking about his son His son is 17 years old and some days are okay, but some days at three o'clock in the morning, for whatever reason, he'll just leave the house and they got to go find him. And I says, well, you know, I have a cousin and their child is autistic. And when I had a Thanksgiving party, this is before COVID, my cousin called me and said, I need you to hide all your TV clickers. And I said, why? And he goes, because my son's going to come over to the house, he's going to find your clickers, and he's going to put them in the toilet. It's what he does. Yeah, I get it. And I says, oh, wow. So I explained that to Paul Simmons. A week later, he calls me up, and we inked a deal where I was going to perform somewhere and do a fundraiser for him. And he said, and by the way, your cousin's name is Trent, isn't it? And I said, yeah, how would you know that? And he goes, because he's been in my class for seven years not even realizing we wow. were talking about the same people wow it was just an experience yeah so when i told him that i was going to have you on the show he said could you mention my name to joe and could you mention what i'm doing because joe has a daughter that's yeah. autistic oh yeah isn't that amazing i remember
1: when she was little she used to they had these these talking kind of like dolls and she would flush those down the toilet i remember once i had to i used one of those you know Things to you know, like uh, to, to to pull, you know, thing out, whatever they call it, plunger, Plung- like a plunger, but like with a, with a screw thing that went down. And I remember it was, <laughs> it was, it was blocking up the toilet. And I've got the thing down there. And I'm screwing. And all of a sudden, you can hear the thing talking underwater. You hear the thing going... like <laughs> <laughs> the doll was talking because I had somehow activated it with the thing. Yeah. And I thought, oh my god, this is this is okay. This is this is part of the game here, you know. uh,
0: You know what? That brings us to a little bit of a joke that I'm going to have to spring on you. Yeah. Uh, Remember I told you before we started the podcast tonight that I have all these antiques all over my house in New Mm -hmm. Jersey. Well, some of the antiques were given to me by my mother and father. In the 60s, they're called the G.I. Joe doll. Right. I have three 1964 G.I. Joe dolls, and they're in mint condition. I have all the outfits and all the adventures that they had done. But maybe... Fifteen years ago, I came up with a joke about the G.I. Joe doll was a mobster. His real name was G.I. Giovanni. When you pulled a string, he told you to go fuck yourself. <laughs> now, this joke is killing, and I extended it. His gumara was Barbie doll. He used to whack Ken, and I made the whole thing. So right. I decided, well, what if I videotape these dolls? Right. Well, people are going nuts. Oh, yeah. Because it's now me imitating the doll they're Italians. I got downtown Ronnie from the from Brooklyn, but <laughs> he's the Jewish doll, and he does their taxes. <laughs> it's so stupid. So we found some people to do some voices, and you know uh, what I'm saying to myself? Wait a minute, you got to do a voice in one of this. Oh God. Maybe one of these days yeah. when I'm shooting them, yeah, we give me some voice yeah, because well, I... it's so silly. Oh yeah. But it's it's hilarious.
1: Hey, Fat Tony, the character I've been doing for 32 years now on The Simpsons, that came from my uncle Willie. Because Michael Willey talk used to talk like that. Because got he, when I got cast in that role right after the Godfather movie came out. This was the Simpsons was only their third season, and they decided I guess to create this this mobster character, and probably because I had played Joey Zaza in the Godfather had just come out. They probably figured, well, that actor might be a good choice because he, sure. you know, he's he's the kind of the gangster of the year now at this movie. So I get the call. Now I come in, I see the script, I think it's very funny. I'm happy to do it. I'm thinking it's a one shot deal. But I'm thinking, I don't want to sound like me because that's Joey Zaza. And I'm thinking, I don't want to make fat Tony, the same character I'm playing in this movie, The Godfather, be like, you know, Coppola will go crazy. Right, know, right. So. so almost instantaneously, I have to think you know, about how am I going to do this character? So I'm thinking about my Uncle Willie, who has been like a dad to me, because my father died when I was fairly young, and my Uncle Willie, one of my dad's mother's brothers, was very close to me. But he talked
0: like this he's got that kind of voice because he smoked all his life yeah <laughs> that's the way he talked
1: so when i did my first lines at the read through of, of the simpsons i started to do the lines like this <laughs> and i'm waiting for somebody like to say something like the director to go whoa whoa, what are you doing you know but nobody said nothing so i was like all right i guess i'll just keep talking like this. and i've been talking like that now for 30 years <clears throat> uh, and nobody said anything so i figured i guess it's working and at one time, I think 15 years into it, I brought Willie to the, one of the recordings because I do about two or three a season. And I remember i walked walking in with him and I go, I want to introduce somebody to you. I said, Willie, say hello. Yeah, hi, hi everybody. And they're all like, oh, my God, it's him. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the source. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so you never know where, where a character's going to come from and what your inspiration's
0: going to be. What was it like to actually uh, work with Francis Ford Coppola? <clears throat> well, I mean, he's he's... Nice guy, he's fun. Absolutely, he's a
1: he's he's the maestro. I mean, you know, here's a guy that, you know, first of all, he's, I, I sense that his movies are like opera. You know what I mean? In yep. a sense, they have that kind of majesty and that kind of. And he's that kind of person. He'd be he would have done well in the Renaissance. You know, what I mean, you put him back in the 1500s, Francis would do just fine, because here was a man who who gobbled up life. I mean, you know, the wine, the you know, the fact that he's in the wine business now makes perfect sense. Yeah. You know, and had a whole Italian cultural thing, and yet he's such an intelligent person and such an imaginative person. So, I got to do is look at, and you know, his movies, and not just the Godfather series. I mean, you know, he, all, any of his other films, and and yeah, I mean, it, I consider it such a privilege to have been able to work with, obviously, one of the greatest, you know, cinematic. Do you directors? keep in touch with
0: a lot of these people? Hi, how are you? Well, Merry it, Christmas. Well,
1: ironically, you mentioned this because. Uh, What's today's. Today's the 14th, and about a week from now, it's going to be the 50th anniversary of the movie, The Godfather, the original Godfather. It's the 50th year of it. Is it real? Yeah, and they're having an event at Paramount Studios, which I'm invited to, because they're going to name one of the streets at Paramount Studio for Francis Rockopola. For oh, they wow. Because, you know, it'll be the John, Jimmy Stewart Street. Or the, you have a street the, in Chicago. The... I got a street in Chicago. It's not the same as on Pyramid Block. No, no, but, it's Chicago. It's, it's Chicago. On. Yeah, Come that's on. true. Chicago. I got one in Chicago, one in Cicero, where I went to high school. So that's kind of nice. And you got
0: one on the Hollywood Boulevard.
1: And it's I got star. I got the star. Yeah, right no, no, no I'm like, I think it's great. But, uh, but I'm going to be going to that event. And, and uh, so I'll see Francis there. And I've, I've uh, yeah, we've, we've, he, he, there was a thing. God must have been maybe 10 years ago. He had, he'd wanted to do a, a huge mini-series about the history of television. And he brought in a whole bunch of actors. And I was flattered that he, that he had me come in as well. We spent a whole day at, at Paramount, just reading what he had written, and it was a it was like you know five hours worth of stuff, five six hours. But you know, I don't it, it never got made, I don't think. But that that's but that's what I mean. That's the kind of imagination and and spirit and talent he has. You know, he'll do something he wants to. You know, he'll 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 throw everything into it and see what he's got. And he may or may not do it, and then moves on to something else. You know.
0: Did you ever have a time in this industry that you said to yourself, "What am I doing? This is too hard"? Was there years that you weren't as successful as you were the year before, and oh, then, well, then all of a sudden sure. there's a year that's yeah. just tremendous, and then yeah, yeah. another year where it's not all yeah. that easy?
1: Well, the early years were difficult, but but you know, but I always enjoyed it, and I, that's the advice I always give people, young people, especially when they ask me, "So how do you how do you get ahead in this business? What's the secret?" I go, "Look, there's no secret." I said, "But you got to love what you're doing, and you have to love the." You have. To, I know this is an old saying, but it's so true. You have to love the journey more than the destination. Right. Because if you're having fun on the ride, you, you, there's no there's no guarantee that you're going to get to the destination you want to get to. But if you're enjoying the ride, it really doesn't even matter.
0: That's know? great advice because in my little world, when I'm on the ride, I'm always looking at the destination. And I never really look at, well, wait a minute. There's yeah. thousands of people here to yeah, watch yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because then I go into my mind going, yeah, but it's only 2,000. Why isn't it not 3,000?
1: <laughs> well, well, that's I mean, that's that's natural though. I mean, I, it's okay to, to strive. You want more, you want to do more, you want to get more. But if there comes a time when it's, you say to yourself, I hate this, I don't know why I'm doing this, then then you gotta start saying, maybe it's time to maybe look in another direction. Wow, yeah, so- As long as you can keep put that other foot in front of another and say no. I'm, I remember, in fact, I remember when I won the Tony Award in 84. I remember I was working professionally from that point from 1969 to 84, just doing anything. You know, making a few bucks here, being broke here. So I remember after that night of uh, the Tony Awards, they have, a, they usually, they have a, you know, obviously a big dinner afterwards. And I remember one of the press people said to me, What's it like? How does it feel to win a Tony Award? I said, I feel like I won the lottery, but I've been buying tickets for the last 15 years. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's that. In other words, I, I felt like I, I put the time in, you know, and there was no guarantees I was going to get, get the, this this jackpot for whatever it's worth. And it wasn't even winning an award that's important. It's the acknowledgement of, okay, well maybe, maybe this is something I can do for a living. In, in essence. Right. You know what I mean? Like somebody's acknowledging the fact that, yeah, we like what you do. Just like your show. People are watching this now. You've got a huge audience. They're not being forced to do this they're doing it because they want to do. It, you know? <laughs> there you go. And so you earned it, you know. And this is yes. the, this is the this is the road you're on. You know?
0: I enjoy all of this stuff and I do enjoy going to work. I do tell people all the time, I can't wait to go. Yeah. I want to get on stage. There you go. They say to me all the time, Why "Aren't you sick of flying?" I'm like, "No, I can't wait to get on the plane. I can't wait to go get on stage." Right. I've gotten to the point in my career where I don't really rehearse until I get on stage. I rehearse on stage and people say to me, where'd you come up with that? And like in the parking lot. That's great. I want to try everything. I want to be part of an ensemble. That's why nowadays I like working either with my own characters, because I feel like I'm in a scene with somebody else. I like doing the videos that I do and I like doing the web series that I do. I like doing this, but I want to work with other actors Mm -hmm. because I want to exercise that muscle. I think one of the greatest things for me is when we get to do stuff with guys like you and Dina, and everybody says to me, what was it like to go to the uh, the bootlegger? Remember the bootlegger, which is the yes. restaurant we went to when we were done? Uh-huh. And everybody says, I saw you in there. There's a lot of stars going there. Got all those red chairs in there and all the famous people. What is that like? I'm like, well, this is what it's like. You keep your mouth shut and you open your ears and you'll hear stories that will blow your mind. And I love sometimes when you talk and you explain this, you talk about these stuff because it gives us more light and, and inspiration to keep on going. And when Dina talks about who her neighbors were and how she used to hang around with Desi Arnaz Jr. and her uncle Frank Sinatra and her uncle Jerry Lewis. And, and you're just like, wow, I don't need to say anything. You just sit there eating, right? And then I remember, I, I keep this, this is my my coin. I did a lot of military tours and I know you love the military. And I have a lot of these coins. But this coin is from Joe Montaney. He gave me this little star from the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It's not the one from the street. It's the one that he gave me with this little character on the back.
1: Yeah, that's Hirschfeld. Yeah, there was that famous cartoonist for the New York Times. And it was like everybody hoped that he, every Friday he would draw a caricature of somebody, you know, that was kind of... That's hilarious. ...popular. And that's that's that's, a, that's from Glengarry Glenn Ross. It's from after I won the Tony Award. He drew that... Uh, and that uh, that particular issue of the New York Times, and Glenn it's become Gary my logo. Glenn Ross. I know Jack Lemon used his Hirschfeld as his logo, and uh, a lot of different people. My daughter has actually she bought a print of George Harrison's, because uh, Hirschfeld did one of George Harrison when he was in the Beatles. You know, and and you can buy you can buy prints, you know, stuff like a lot of different Hirschfelds, and and so he was just uh, just he lived in, to be in his 90s, but he was the greatest probably. Uh, caricaturist I love, I
0: love all those mementos I love all those stories I love everything we got going on I love you and thank you so much for coming to hang out um I always say goodnight by telling everybody where they can find you but I think they know
1: whatever
0: you go to go dot com, and I'll tell you I guess what I'm up to <laughs> you can go to com, and I'll show you what he's up to you can watch his new series that's out on Amazon Prime, right? Right. Amazon Prime, Prime. as we see it, it's called. And uh, you're going to see a lot more from Joe Montana. If you're in Hollywood, why not walk down the Hollywood uh, Walk of Fame and go see his uh, star next to Colombo? Yeah, exactly. Peter Falk that everybody used to impersonate back in the day. And uh, I wish you all the best, and I hope that we're going to do some projects together. Whether it's going to be live, whether it's going to be another roast, or whether it's going it. to be like, something like silly, better. something
1: goofy. I like nothing
0: better. I want to thank my producer who always makes these shows. Oh, you want to finish oh, with and that? and
1: a Stella Dora cookie. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I'm five years old again. <laughs>
0: The reason why I brought the stelladoro cookies is because when you go to an Italian deli, mostly anywhere in the world, this is where you get them. In California, you're not getting them in Ralph's, you're not gonna get them in any other. They could have been made in
1: 1957 and they'll still taste exactly the same.
0: They're hard, they crunch, but you dip them in your coffee and that's what you get. And you know what you get when you come to a Mike Marino show live from my mother's basement? We're gonna send Joe home with some shirts. I got some new masters. (laughs) Fojas. Foggia Italian Market and Deli. We take care of our
1: people. We take care of our own.
0: (laughs) Yes, because if we don't. (laughs) Foggia Italian Market and Deli is in Lakewood, California. It's not too far from the Laugh Factory in Long Beach, California, where I'm going to be. And this week, why don't I invite you here on on the internet. Um, Thursday night is a birthday slash comedy show at the North Hollywood Ha Ha Comedy Club. If you want to come, we'll get you to come in the back door. Nobody will bother you. There's gonna be some friendly faces there. We're gonna have a lot of fun. I wanna thank Tatiana Blue Shell for making our podcast fantastic. Isn't she great? great? She came here today. She made it fantastic, fantastic. She does everything all the time, making it fantastic. Also the web series Make America Italian again. I don't know if you saw the show. Oh yeah. Have absolutely. these comedians, you know, because their families were in the industry as well. Marco oh, yeah. Asante is Armando Asante's nephew. And what I did was, since the four of us were on tour, I said, well, why don't we film something during the day? So we brought Tatiana and her husband, Cody, who directs and edits and produces all of this stuff. And what was just us having fun turned into a money-making machine. As it should. Because it's silly. As it should. And, you know, (laughs) even your friend Robert Dobby calls me, when am I going to be in one of the episodes? (laughs) I'm like, you want to do this? Hey, I'm funny. (laughs) Well, all right. <laughs> Cut the cheese, <laughs> you know. And of course, Vinnie Ciceri and all yes, these right. wonderful people. So, see. thank you everybody for tuning in and hanging out with me, Mike Marino, live from my mother's basement. Superstar actor, producer, director, Joe Montana. Remember, let's make America Italian again. My motto is: you don't know nothing, you don't see nothing, you don't say nothing. And how do I end every single one of my broadcasts? By always saying the same thing. I say, don't take no shit from nobody. You ready? Yeah. Don't Don't take take no shit shit from nobody. Good night. Love it. Thanks for listening to Live from My Mother's Basement with me, Mike Marino. Make sure you log on to all my social media at Mike Marino Live on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.